Well, good morning, everybody. Let me warmly welcome you uh, to our worship uh, service today. We are going to be um, uh, looking at uh, our continuing in our series on King David, and we're going to be looking at his legacy of worship. That's our that's our focus today. If there's one thing about David, he was a man after God's heart, and he uh, pioneered a lot of what we practice today as as modern worship. And so uh, we're going to look at uh, his uh, his legacy, but also uh, how it affects us, you and me, today. So the way we're going to do this, first I want to start with where we were last week. Last week we got to the point where David was purchasing the threshing floor of Arauna the Jebusite up on a rocky outcrop of Mount Moriah. And uh, I want to look at First Chronicles uh, chapter 21 for the backstory. It says that, nevertheless, King David said to Ornan, No, but I will certainly buy it for the full price, for I will not take what is yours for the Lord, nor offer a burnt offering which cost me nothing. So David paid Arona 600 shekels of gold for the site. David built an altar to the Lord there and sacrificed burnt offerings and fellowship offerings. He called on the Lord, and check this, and the Lord answered him with fire from heaven, on the altar of burnt offering. So here you have the sacrifice, and God sends fire from heaven to answer David's request. And uh, the story at the end of First Chronicles continues. Uh, then the Lord spoke to the angel. This was the pre-incarnate Jesus, and he put his sword back into its sheath. And uh, at that time, when David saw that the Lord had answered him on the threshing floor of Arona the Jebusite, he offered sacrifices there. The tabernacle of the Lord, which Moses had made in the wilderness, and the altar of burnt offering were at that time on the high place in Gibeon. That's in another location in Israel. But David could not go before there to inquire of God because he was afraid of the sword of the angel of the Lord. He got a vision... He got a vision uh, of how uh, the Lord wanted worship to look like. And so from now on, the official worship site would be moved to Mount Moriah in Jerusalem. So we're going to look at this story at, at, through 1 Chronicles 22 to 26 this morning. And we're going to do it in three parts. The first part is really the vision. David gets a vision of what God wants in this temple. So we're going to look at the preparation he makes to build the temple. The second part of the message this morning, we're going to have some discussion on that. The second part of the message is going to be that David takes the vision and applies it and puts a very detailed plan for the Levites of how to actually worship God. And that's going to be First Chronicles 23 and 26. And then David's, the fulfillment of David's legacy will actually come uh, a thousand years later uh, in the teaching and in the life of Jesus. And that's what we're going to look at this morning. That'll be our third part. And here's the big idea. The big idea is that God's inviting us into worship. And through the covenant with David, God specified what worship was going to be like or had to be like, focusing on the temple and the priests. But through the life and teaching of Jesus, the son of David, 
he has specified the quality of worship that he wants from every single person who follows him. And that's because we are all, all of those who follow Christ are his priests. And also, we are his temples. So, uh, let me pray and we're going to dive in. Father, show us through these uh, chapters of First Chronicles, show us, God, the, the vision, the application, and the fulfillment of worship. And Lord, I pray you'd speak to each and every one of us today in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, Jamie, if you want to come on up and help me uh, with this, we're going to dive into the text. You guys, welcome Jamie this morning. All right. Well, that was kind of a, not a very warm welcome. Let's welcome Jamie this morning. Can you believe that? All right. All right. Apparently, you have to juggle to get claps in here. Apparently. Right, right. Okay, so David is preparing to build a magnificent temple. This is probably one of the most spectacular buildings on the earth in those days. He wants to reunite worship and sacrifices, but he's going to move that from Gibeah to Jerusalem on Mount Moriah. This is the same spot where Abraham was about to sacrifice Isaac, and it's the very same spot where Jesus will be crucified. So David has the vision. He sees the blessing of unhurried time in the Lord's presence. He loves to spend time in the tent, in the tent with God, and he's going to bring that to the people of Israel. He wants the people of Israel to see that and know that. And uh, He's going to do everything he can do to the absolute highest standard of excellence. And uh, of all the things he could have talked about, uh, of all of the, uh, of all of the, you know, we're talking about 100,000 talents of silver. We're talking about a million talent, or uh, 100,000 talents of gold and a million talents of silver, stone, uh, architectural drawings. There's a million things that, David could have talked to his son Solomon about who was going to build this thing and he tells him one thing and it's in chapter 22 verse 19 he says now devote your heart and soul to seeking the Lord out of all those different out of all those different things they could have been talking about David says he passes on to his son the one thing the one thing that really matters and uh, here I just think of our lives. You know, there's a million things going on in our lives. There's work and parenting and marriage and friends and coworkers. There's all kinds of details of our bills and everything else that we've got to tend to on a daily basis. And there's things that we give ourselves to. It might be entertainment. It might be working out. It might be reading but these things, these things are secondary, have to be secondary. So one of those things, one of those things for many of us, if we are true, is uh, of those distractions is politics. If David has taught us anything, it is do not despair or do not gloat or do not lose friendships today over two men who do not know your name. 
I'm serious. Recognize that our Creator knows us. He knit us together in our mother's womb. Our Creator loves us with an everlasting love. Uh, our Creator knows how many hairs we have on our heads, and He knows how many days we're going to live. Our Creator has a special name that He's going to give us at the end when the time is right. He knows us intimately. And our Creator is our King. Our King has been sovereign over thousands of kings through the years. And he's done that sovereign job quite well without our vote, without our understanding, without our approval. Yet, he has never lost track of his kingdom and his purpose to reconcile people to himself. He has never lost track of that. He is protecting the unprotected. He is loving the unlovable. He is the king of all kings. And he is building a glorious kingdom. And that should be our attention every day. But most certainly today as we think about King David. So we do, we do congratulate and bless Mr. Biden and Ms. Harris. And we do pray that they will do a good job and they will do good in these next four years. Those are pretty hard jobs. So let's, uh, let's continue, as commanded by the Lord, to pray for them as we pray always for all of our elected officials. So, Father, we thank you for those that you have put into elected positions, and we ask, God, that you'd give them wisdom and revelation to do their jobs well. And we thank you, Father, that in the spirit of David, we reserve passionate worship for the only one worthy, you, our King. In Jesus' name, amen. So let's look at the qualities of David's worship. He, first of all, worships, it's costly and it's lavish. So we have here a million, a uh, hundred thousand talents of gold and a million talents of silver. So that's about 3,750 tons of gold and it's about 37,500 tons of silver. So in today's money, that's $260 billion. All right? Costly, lavish, and generous. Second thing about his worship is that it is centered on seeking the Lord's presence. And here is this picture of the, the fire of God coming uh, onto uh, King David's offering. So qualities of Davidic worship, uh, costliness, and focus on the Lord's presence. Now I'm going to throw it over to Jamie to talk about uh, a question that we can discuss on that matter. Yeah, so when we try to think, okay, how do, I, how do we apply this to our lives today? Um, obviously, if God is in the practice in the Old Testament of sending fire down onto an altar, I mean, that's not the first time that's happened, right? You got the prophets of Baal and Elijah. There's other moments where fire is coming down. But in the New Covenant, where and y'all can talk back to me a little bit. In the New Covenant, when we talk about fire, what is that referring to? Is that a physical reality or is that a spiritual reality? It's a spiritual reality with regard to worship. 
with regard, with regard to engaging with the presence of God. And I'm thinking specifically of the two disciples of Jesus walking on the road to Emmaus. And they encounter Jesus. But they don't know it's him, right? And he's talking to them. And he's explaining to them in the scriptures. And after they realize it's him and he, he leaves, what do they say to one another? Do you remember what they say? Didn't our hearts burn within us as he spoke to us? So what is all this talk? Fire, burning, all this talk is, is actually the language of revival and renewal for us in the New Covenant. Revival and renewal is nothing short of increased zeal, passion, and fire for Jesus. And so we see that in David's life. So the question that we want to talk through is, what would it be like to have fire on the altar of your heart? I just want to discuss this a little bit, just as a, as a church family. Just some real practical ways. How, what, is it, what does it mean? And how do we function as believers where there's fire in our hearts? So we've got a microphone that's going to be coming around. Uh, Brandon's got it in the back. So uh, questions, thoughts about that? Fire on the altar of the heart. And while you're thinking, I will throw it to Dennis Spurgeon, who's online, just posted. Are we as conscious of building our temple as David was? Which is what we're about to get into. Meticulous. David was meticulous about this is what we're going to do. This is all the, the ingredients and the resources that we're going to acquire and prepare because this is important. The worship of God, the presence of God with his people is so important that I will dedicate years of preparation for that. Others, this discussion of fire in the altar of your heart. Uh, so now during COVID-19, we all have the habit of washing our hands and saying the Lord's Prayer as we wash our hands. And so I have made it a point because we can mindlessly say it. I mean, we know it by heart. We don't even have to think about it. We just say it. So I have been purposely saying each word, really thinking about the meaning of it, letting it sink into my heart and letting it burn in my heart and giving it meaning as I say it. So it is a completely different, different experience. So, yeah. That's good. Others? I'll just speak personally. Um, I love it when I'm passionate in my zeal for Jesus. But if I'm honest, that's not true of my heart all the time. And, you know, there's seasons where I will actually be cold. Like the altar of my heart is actually cold towards God. And we have no control over the fire, right? <laughs> I, I, I can't turn on a switch. It's not like a, you know, a, a gas fireplace. I don't have any control over that. What I do have responsibility for is to put some wood on that altar. I'm responsible for getting rid of all the water or any moisture that might be in that space. So y'all, y'all understand the, the analogy here. There are things that we do in our life, just like David prepared the temple. There are things that we do to put wood 
and then we ask, Holy Spirit, would you light on this? So I read the word, and I'm asking the Spirit of God to light upon my heart, the very presence of Jesus. I'm, I'm avoiding sin as a way of, of packing the altar and asking the Father to burn in my heart. I'm, I'm getting around other people that are also on fire, and I'm like, please, Lord, let their fire get on me. So these are, these are things that we do because we can't control fire and zeal, but we sure can prepare our hearts. So when the Spirit says, Pow! there's kindling there, that the Word is in me. I'm around community. I'm, I'm, I'm walking away from sin. We want to be like David in this way, preparing our own hearts for his fire and his presence to come. When we're okay, there we go. So, when we love well, we bring the fire of the kingdom. When we sacrificially uh, love someone, when we humble ourselves, when we ask for forgiveness, when we're generous, these are all different ways that um, we put wood on the altar. Does that make sense? Okay, so let's dive into part two because David has this vision, obviously, of the temple, but now he's got to go through some application. And one of the things he says to himself is that the, the Levites, this is the descendants of Levi. There were all the Levites, and then the descendants of Aaron's family were the priests. They were all, they were all part of that, of that uh, Levitic tribe. Well, David realizes, hey, wait a minute. They don't have to walk through the wilderness anymore. They don't have to pick up and carry all this stuff anymore. I'm going to put these guys to work. So he's got 38,000 Levites that are age 30 and above. He makes 24,000 of them priests, 6,000 of them judges. He takes 4,000 of them to be gatekeepers around the temple area. And then he appoints 4,000 to be the musicians, the worshipers. And then in chapter 23, he lowers the age of service from 30 to 20. So he probably adds another several thousand of these. So there, there may be now more than 50,000 of these Levites serving. Now imagine in the time of Jesus, the Temple Mount was this huge platform that Herod built. Probably a half a million people could be on there. They would be sacrificing a quarter of a million um, uh, goats and sheep uh, and bulls on the altar. So you have to imagine a half a million people, this massive barbecue raging in the middle of the, raging in the middle. Of, so think of the smell. Then you've got the Levites in their white with their red, with their red bands and their tassels and their shofars and singing. So you are talking about sight and sound and smell and yelling and shouting. And David is dancing and the dancer, the worshipers are dancing. It's, a, it's an absolute visual feast of what's going on, of every possible scent, sense that we have. And the musicians, 
we read there's 4,000 of them. And, and guess what? In, in chapter 25, verse 1, they were selected with the help of the army commanders. I'm going to come back to that. But the army commanders knew from Jericho and from several other battles that the worshipers, the singers, were critical people in the mix of all of what David had been shown by God. So they're, they're coming in. These singers are organized into 24 choirs. In 1 Chronicles 9, verse 33, it says, Now these are the singers, heads of fathers' households and the Levites, who lived in the chambers of the temple, free of other duties, for they were engaged in their work day and night. It is pretty clear now that these 24 divisions of choirs were doing day and night worship. 24-7 worship was going on. And the leaders and these choirs each had 12 leaders and teachers, but then they probably had another 150 singers. So you have 24 choirs of something like 165 people, 4,000 people in a constant rotation of singing. And the other thing we see is that this is all described by David in chapter 23, 24, 25, and 26. And in chapter 27, he lumps in the politicians, the administrators, and the army. All in one chapter. But he gives five chapters to worship. And we see this extensive thing. So what are the, what are the qualities of David's worship? Number one, it's continuous. They sang 24-7. Number two, the worship engages the body and the senses. So in 2 Samuel 6, if you can go to the 2 Samuel 6 passage, wearing a linen ephod, David was dancing before the Lord with all his might while he and all of Israel were bringing up the ark of the Lord with shouts and the sounds of trumpets. Now you'll go to Israel today and you'll see the, the, the Hasidic or the... Or the uh, ultra-Orthodox Jews, and they're at the, the prayer wall, the Western Wall, and they're like this. They're praying, and it's body, everything's involved in the prayer activity. It reminds me of a story when uh, we hosted Brother Yoon here, the, the man from China who had been tortured for his faith. Uh, the book about him is called The Heavenly Man. Well, he came here, and he spoke one night. And uh, Paul was in here with the worship team getting ready to worship. The place was packed. My job was to welcome Brother Yoon over by the offices and to pray with him before the service. So I walk in uh, to the... Or in, in, I'm in the hearth room outside my office. And literally, I walk up to him and I say, Brother Yoon, welcome. His translator's right behind him. And all of a sudden, without, without just he looked at me and then... He went down in his face in front of the Lord and said and started praying in Chinese. His translator was down on his face right there. Now I'm standing. I'm standing giving a welcome to Brother Yun. And I'm saying to myself, there's something about the Lord he knows that I don't know. There's something about the Lord that he experiences that I don't experience. And you know what? I wasn't shamed at all. There was no shame in it. There was actually a desire to pray like that. 
And so very shortly after, I was down on my face. And we were praying. And that, that changed my prayer life. It changed my prayer life, that, that experience with Brother Yoon. So worship engages the body and the senses. And I think we're, we're trained here to be uh, behaving in a certain way in a church. And obviously there's reverence and awe and all those things. Um, but David's worship was bodily and full on. And, and lastly, David's worship is centered in the spirit-revealed truth of the Psalms. So they appoint Asaph and Heman and Jeduthun, people that are mentioned in about 15 of the Psalms in our Psalter, uh, authors of those Psalms. And uh, this is, this is the, the reason that I believe the book of Psalms was Jesus' second favorite book in the Bible, at least by what he quoted. So uh, the question I, I want to open up today, and I want to have Raz just come and, and lead us in a bit of a riff on this, is you know, this idea that we so often come to worship with restraint or infrequency or lack of priority. Um, and when we look at this picture of, of what God ordained in the temple, um, I think it's got to, I think it's got to affect, affect us. I think it's got to shift us in our practice of worship. Raz? Yeah, I think that, uh, especially when we read through the Psalms, that, um, good morning, everybody. By the way, I just jumped right into it. <laughs> I don't want to take too long with it, but um, I think that when we see, like, when the psalmists say something like, you know, worship the Lord, my soul, worship, it just doesn't come natural to us. Our, our The flesh does not want to bow down and lay down in front of the Lord. And I just want to take us, I'm, I'm going to throw these scriptures up for you, so if you want to take a picture of them, I don't have the actual uh, full quote of the scriptures, but I want you to just take a look at this. I'm just going to real briefly go through here. In Psalm 34, 1, we're using our bodies, it's, we speak to the Lord. So, the, Psalm 27, 6, we shout to the Lord. I don't know that we're really good at that one. Uh, I will share, well, I, sh I will share with you one time. I was in a conference and we were, I don't even remember what, it, what kind it was or whatever. But anyway, I, I remember, I think there was a number of pastors there and leaders there. But we began, we were worshiping, and we had kind of come into the end of a song. But man, the Holy Spirit was heavy in the room. And it was just, and all of a sudden, we all, all at once, we began shouting to the Lord. We were just shouting, and it was loud. I mean, it was, and, I, and probably, I don't think I exaggerate, for maybe five minutes. I mean, just shouting to the Lord, you are glorious, you are good. Like we, I think we all kind of got broken, you know, there. We also, um, in uh, Psalm 47, 6, obviously we sing to the Lord, and I think we're pretty good about that here in the West. But I want to, just for you, you guys who've been in the church like me for forever, I'm going to throw out a couple things at you just for grins here. The fourth one, bowing and kneeling. Can you guys help me with this? Let us, come let us worship and bow down and kneel before the stop. Lord. Come let us worship and when is the last time you've bowed before the Lord, as Dennis was talking about? What was the last time we kneeled before the Lord? It's actually brought, it's brought into our hearts. It's like, you know why? Because my body needs to come in alignment with what my spirit's supposed to be doing. And you know what? Something happens in that. God will meet you in that. I've had, and I mean this both corporately and individually. And so we know the scripture. Many of you just quoted it to me. Come, let us worship and, and bow down. kneel. Yeah, 
before the Lord their God. Yeah, there's something to that. There is. Amen. Periodically, I think it's been, I think God's been tweaking our staff a little bit. I think we've been lately, I've noticed that among even our staff as we begin praying, we're beginning to kneel down a lot more and we're just, I don't know, there's something there that God's wanting to do with us to humble us. Also, we stand before the Lord. You know, we've seen passages uh, from, you know, where it speaks of Josiah where they stood in repentance before the Lord as Scripture was read for hours. So we stand before the Lord. Of course, dancing before the Lord, often we don't feel super comfortable with that. I know you don't want to see this guy dance. That's why I became a guitar player, so I could play and let them dance. But uh, dancing before, and he would like it, right? If it wasn't great, he'd still like my dancing before him. But uh, we obviously, as I said, you know, we're, we're clapping and, and shouting. Uh, we lift hands. We, we're probably pretty good at that here. And, of course, we play instruments and we do that. But these are all just take a picture of this and just go kind of look at it. And if you begin to scan Scripture at all and just this is a tiny little bit of Scripture that I've given you, it, what it talks about with our bodies. But listen, like I want to do the same thing with you at number seven. Uh, see if you guys know this one. Uh, clap your hands, all you people. Come on, bring it. No, shout to the Lord with a voice of with a voice of triumph. It's like clap your. It's it can also be translated clap your hands, all you nations, and shout unto the Lord with a voice of triumph. We have triumphed. That's something to shout about. And real quick, I'm gonna I'm gonna be really quick with this. We do. I'm gonna challenge you that we do all of these things right now. We just don't do them with the Lord. Okay. Real quick, obviously we speak. By the way, I'm going to speak on speaking. Speak out loud to the Lord. When you begin to speak out prayers, that goes out into the spirit realm. There's something powerful. How did the Lord himself make this creation? Anyone? He what? Okay. He what? Right. There's power that comes out as we begin to say, Lord, I believe that you are in control. Lord, I believe that you will overcome this, this uh, me being laid off at my work. I there's some power that happens there. Again, uh, shouting. Did he, has anybody shot at a football game ever? Oh, you do? Is that okay? Is that you a little embarrassed about it, though? I mean, what if the Bengals score a touchdown that one time? And then, uh, <laughs> and then, and then, and then <laughs> so you, you just may, or you maybe, you know, Dennis gets all excited, starts shouting. I'm like, hey, bro, you need to calm it down a little bit. Do you do that? No, man, you jump right in there. We shout, woo, we shout it out. We sing it out. You know, I love my youth when it comes to singing. If we try to worship, here's how it goes right here. But you light them up in a car driving up to a camp and throw on some Taylor Swift or something, man, they're just jamming like it's going. Come on now. We sing. Hey, has anybody, has there anybody ever uh, proposed to their wife? What, what, what do you do if you're a good husband? I did not do this well, I will admit. But if you've thought it through a little bit and you're getting ready to to ask someone to marry you, what do you do? Kneel. You kneel. You get down. You kneel. We know we bow before kings. We know that uh, what happens when the bride's coming in? Anybody? When this, when, huh? Everybody Why? Yes. Up. Standing up to honor. We know these things, right? We do all of these things. Dancing, clapping, shouting. You know, even... Now, I want you to think about this for a second. Typically, in, let's say throughout history, what is lifting of hands? What is that a sign of? Yes. Do you need to maybe surrender today a little bit? Be like, you know what? You know, I, I, I used to be one of those people that would, you know, would joke, you know, joke about, make fun of, you know, certain parts of the church movement. And I've repented for all that. And the Lord has slapped me down a number of times about that. But, it, but 
This says, I'm saying, Lord, I surrender to you. Amen. This is important yeah. things that we, that we begin to do with our bodies. And I'm telling you, you will be blown away at how God will meet you. And I don't mean just here, but in your living room, in your quiet space. I love to sit and read the word, but sometimes we need to drop to our knees. We need to lift our hands. We need to speak it out loud. Amen. All of these things. So anyway, I just encourage you toward all that. Thank There's a lot rest. of things that you can play around with there. Amen. All right, we've got a couple of comments from, uh, from the online group and uh, talking about uh, a lot of talk about God's fire comes down on acceptable, pleasing sacrifices. His fire does not come down on the things that are not of him. And um, Mark Wavell's talking about having the lies of the enemy burnt up by God's truth. Um, so... And Leslie mentions we could learn a lot about how to worship in these ways from our African-American brothers and sisters right. and other people of color. Right. I'm thinking about the worship we experience when we go to Mexico yeah. uh, or Nigeria right. uh, is amazing, <laughs> is amazing. I think we're going to just dive into number three, I think. So, uh, by the way, King David was a man of one thing, and this worship that he organized... It was used by seven leaders in Israel uh, after, after David. Solomon, Jehoshaphat, Joash, Hezekiah, Josiah, Ezra, and Nehemiah all reinstituted Davidic worship. And every single time, there was either a military victory or a spiritual revival. So there's something powerful about the Davidic way of worship. So let's, let's go into part three, which is the fulfillment of David's legacy, which is Jesus Christ. So Jesus radically simplified and he radically raised the bar on worship where he uh, spoke to the woman at the well. In John 4, he told her that worship is going to be transformed and it's going to be mobilized. He says, so she says to him, hey, I can see you're a prophet our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, which is Mount Gedizim. But you Jews claim that the place uh, where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. And he continues... Give me that next slide. Yep, yep. Yet a time is coming and has now come when true worshipers will worship the Father in the Spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is Spirit, and His worshipers must worship in the Spirit and in truth. And the woman said, I know that Messiah, called the Christ, is coming. When He comes, He will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I... The one speaking to you, I am he, this Messiah. And he's declaring that worship would be in spirit and in truth, and that no matter who she was, the woman with five husbands and living with a man who was not, no longer her husband, no matter what, the truth of the gospel would set her free, and the Holy Spirit would enable her to worship in spirit and in truth. Jamie? Yeah, when Jesus says there, um, the Father is seeking worshipers who will worship him in spirit and truth. That word worshipers is proskuneo, which 
is a picture. The word worship there is a picture of someone before uh, a king bowing down, holding the feet, kissing the feet. So follow me. That's the word proskuneo. I'm getting a little Greek nerdy in this for you a little bit. Uh, but, the, but what's interesting is the noun, worshipers, is from that verb. So the father is seeking worshipers, and what they look like is bowed down at his feet, holding his garment. Mm. It's, it's like that woman who had issue of blood for a decade plus, and she's like, if I can just touch his garment. And I've found that when worship is cold in my heart, it's because I forgot how good he is. Mm -hmm. And I'm not willing to get on my knees and crawl to him and hold onto his garment. Mm -hmm. So just, just as an encouragement to us, the Father, the creator of the universe, is seeking those who are crawling up to him and grabbing his garment. If I can just touch him. He's seeking those kinds of people. So when there's a Pharisee standing there in prayer, and then a sinner who's beating his breast, right? He says, have mercy on me. And the Pharisee says, I'm just glad I'm not like this guy. We see that picture. Amen. Worship happens when I realize, hmm. Lord, I need mercy. Amen. And I will, I will on my knees go after you. Proskuneo, bowing at the feet of the king. Mm. That's what we're to look like, worshipers. So what, what would it look like uh, for you to, to know the Lord's presence? Maybe you could share how that has happened for you. Maybe online, there's, somebody wants to comment about that, but I'd like to, I'd like to bring it into that, that reality of the Lord's presence because I believe it's the Lord's presence that causes us to stand up and clap. It's the Lord's presence that causes us to kneel. It's the Lord's presence that causes us to be prostrate before him. It's, it's his presence that causes us to speak and sing and celebrate his goodness. So anybody want to share on that? Um... Singing has entered into my worship in the last few years. I have one note. I don't read music. It doesn't sound good. I'm alone when I do it. But I have a <laughs> hymnal which, where, in which I've identified maybe a hundred hymns. And I listed them on the front page. And every night, or every morning when I worship, Good. I select one or two of them and sing and sing. Sounds good to me. Amen. And it, uh, I've gotten, I know many of these now by heart. And I can sing, you know, I don't have to be Amen. kneeling and bowing down. I can sing in other places without the hymnal. Anyway, that's just been one way in which my uh, worship time has been enhanced. Amen. That's great, Burr. That's a, that's a great recommendation to get a hymnal and read and sing through the hymnal. It's an absolute awesome recommendation. We've got one more over here. I think we've got time for one or two more. 
You could just leave your thing on if, yeah, sorry, we're uh, trying to. So the way that I experience God's presence is through um, creating a safe place and inviting Jesus to be with me. And, uh, and then imagining him being my friend in a, in a really beautiful place. And then he just comes alive and I can experience the presence of my father through that. Amen. That's great. What a great sp- practical. I'm just thinking that a lot of the times what Jamie was saying about um, bowing down, we never do it unless there's some kind of an adversity. And then we seek the Lord's presence in that moment. So what would it be like if we did it when we d- weren't in chaos or in trials or in adversity? What Amen. would life actually be like? Yep. Last one. I've got just a quick analogy. So I'm watching the Notre Dame-Clemson football game last night. <laughs> and, and, and during the game, they were talking about how the players, college football players, have been training since, like, last whatever. And COVID has kept them from games and things like that. And when I think about my walk with Christ, there's training that I do. I do a morning devotional, and I do prayer, and I read the Bible, and I'm in training. And that's important. But there's nothing like being in the game. And when the game is played and the emotion comes up and you don't know what's going to happen, and I think that's when the Lord's presence comes alive in our life, when we're in the game, when we're taking meals to people, when we're raking the neighbor's lawns, when we're helping somebody move, when we're lending somebody our car, when we're inviting a family into our house, when we're sending care packages to missionaries. That's, That's the game. That's what we train for. And so get off the sidelines, get in the game, and I think the Lord's presence opens up in abundant and incredible ways. Yeah, that's good. That's good. Yeah, we had a couple. That's really good. Get in the game. A couple more online, and then we're going to move on. Uh, Naj Stevens is saying giving thanks is a way of worship. And uh, Dennis Spurgeon is saying take off your sandals, for the place where you are is holy ground. And I think there can be, uh, there can be some real um, power in taking our shoes off before the Lord. Thank you for that. That's good. Well, I'm going to wrap up uh, here. Thanks, Jamie. Uh, do you have anything you wanted to add? All right. I'm, I'm just going to wrap up, and we're going to get the worship team to come up. And uh, I just want to read Acts chapter 15, because the prophet Amos spoke of a time that was coming when the Messiah would take the fallen tabernacle of David. The fallen tabernacle of David is the kingdom of David, the worship of David, uh, the rule of David, uh, and it would be restored as a powerful blessing to the whole world. And in the book of Acts, this quote is brought up because they're discussing, do Gentile believers have to get circumcised like the Jews? And the Jewish believers are saying, no, 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 not even we could live under that. And they're using this quote from uh, the uh, prophet um, Amos. I just want to read this. All the people kept silent, and they were listening to Barnabas and Paul as they were relating all of the signs and wonders that God had done um, through them among the Gentiles. After they stopped speaking, James responded saying, Brothers, listen. Uh, Listen to me. Simeon has described how God first concerned himself uh, about 
taking a people for his name from among the Gentiles. The words of the prophets agree with this, just as it is written, After these things I will return, and I will rebuild the fallen tabernacle of David, and I will rebuild its ruins, and I will restore it, so that, what? So the rest of mankind may seek the Lord, and all the Gentiles who are called by my name. Says the Lord who makes these things known from long time ago. In other words, Jesus came to, re, to renew, to rebuild, to transform Davidic worship, where all that matters is that you're in with all your heart. All that God wants, all of your heart. And with David, it looked in a certain way, but with Jesus, he says it's even more simple than that it's spirit and truth and worship in spirit and truth, uh, and he wants our whole hearts. So we're going to respond this morning with three applications. Um, first, we're going to worship. So worship team's going to come up. You guys come up and get organized here and get ready to lead us. Um, we're going to worship, and we're just going to sing three songs to close our service together today. But I encourage you to be free in your posture, in your expression, in your wholeheartedness. Uh, also, uh, at the Connect Desk, there's a, a booklet that uh, I've prepared for you. This is also available on our website uh, under the tab that says Updates. Events, sorry. Under the tab that says Events, there's a link to this. And there's hard copies out here. But they are, uh, they are declarations uh, that are designed to set your heart on fire by looking at the Word of God, by looking at what God, who God is and what He says about you and me. And I hope you'll be encouraged. And, and the idea here, we, I was in a prayer, a prayer phone call on Thursday. Here's the idea. Be a connoisseur of God. Be a connoisseur of God. Know what He says about Himself and about you and ask uh, and the title of this is Intimate, Created to Worship Every Day, Intimate Declarations to Set Your Heart on Fire. We're going to ask for the Lord uh, to send fire. And thirdly, we're going to worship on November 17th uh, as we dedicate a new worship album to the Lord. We'll unite uh, with other believers across the city. Yeah. So uh, if you need prayer, please contact us for prayer. We'll be praying on the patio afterwards for anybody who needs prayer. Our texts for next week are going to be 2 Samuel 23, 1 to 7, Psalm 138, and Acts 13, 32 to 39. So let's, uh, I'm going to pray and we're going to worship the Lord, and then uh, I'll come up and give us a closing benediction. Father, we thank you for the privilege and the honor of worship. And we ask now, Lord, that uh, you would set fire on our hearts as we respond to you. In Jesus' name, Lord, we ask that you'd receive our worship, receive our offering. Amen. Amen.